I'm Nick Burns. This is Live and Local. It's another episode of Radioactive. And we are, of course, your show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives everywhere. And of course, we're coming to you on your community connection, 90.9 FM KRCL, and of course, online krcl.org. If you want to get a head start on Radiothon, gosh, be my pleasure. You can make a pledge now, krcl.org. As usual on a Wednesday night, I'm thrilled with what Laura, our producer, has got set up. We want to talk um, and really focus on a rally and resource that's really kind of exciting. And this is the Steampunk Academy with Justice Morath. He's, of course, you know, Justice has been on the show many times before. And coming up April 1st, Don't Pity the Fool, the Euphoric Pursuit of Agony with Lee Cowart. She has a new book out, Hurts So Good, The Science and Culture of Pain on Purpose. I'm about halfway through that book, I have to say, I've never read a science writer that's funnier than Lee Cowart, so we want to talk with them. Also on the show tonight, it's the 20th anniversary of the Summit Land Conservancy. Their mission, wow, their mission, it's really quite simple. If you go to their website, it says save land. So we'll catch up with their progress on this 20th anniversary year. And back half of the show, we'll talk with the YWCA and get their overview about the legislative sessions the 2022, I should say, Utah legislative session wins, losses, and in-betweens in terms of their mission. So let's just jump into this. The Steampunk Academy, and of course that's S-T-E-A-M, Science, Technology, Engineering, Arts, and Math, the Punk Academy. Justice, real quick, before we bring in Lee Coward and talk about her book and talk about the event, tell me about the Steampunk Academy. Remind folks. Yeah, so we were born a couple years ago out of what was originally Science on Tap SLC, um, and we wanted to expand and kind of you know get to those other uh, other words in the acronym. Um, <laughs> and so yeah, we just also wanted to start doing more kind of interactive uh, events around science communication and just um, you know communicating all the arts and math and tech. Um, and so we also try to do what we can in making it very fun, engaging, and sometimes very adult. Um, and because there's there, there's a lot of great STEM and STEAM programs for kids, but not a lot for for an adult on a Friday night. So so that's kind of what our what our angle is. Um, and yeah, we're we're coming back. We did a few COVID safe events and some virtual events over the last couple of years, um, but this is our first uh, big one back. So. Oh, very good. And, and speaking of adult, this all is at a bar. Um, folks, yep. I think, need a ticket, but they can just come and join. So, yeah, this is Adult Pursuit of Agony with Lee Cowart. Lee, let's bring you in. You're going to be a part of this event on Friday. Indeed, I am. And I'm very excited about it. Is it different to come and meet an event in person and talk about your research and work as opposed to writing what really is kind of a funny book about it? <laughs> uh, it is very different, and I'm so excited. Oh. Honestly, so much of what I do is done like writing and editing and researching, and it's pretty solitary. Uh, but the reporting and then the talking about the work afterwards means I get to like talk to people and hear them share their stories with me. And it's great. The energy is really fun. And I'm going to do something just hideously stupid during Ooh. the event. <laughs> okay. 
Mm-hmm. Well, I, I want to talk about the event, but I also want to spend a couple of minutes on your book because I am reading it right now. I'm about in the middle. And, and as I mentioned in the intro, it's pretty funny. I don't think I've ever read a science writer that swears as much in print as you do. <laughs> but it really is an interesting book. And as someone who lives with chronic pain, I found it really, really interesting. So Hurts So Good, The Science and Culture of Pain on Purpose. And it probably goes without saying, you start the book with quite a bang. Uh, You get into sexual pleasure connected to pain. But, you know, once you read a couple chapters, it really seems like masochism and sex is, that's really only kind of a hook. Right. That is, sexual masochism is one that more people are familiar with because of the origin of the word. The word comes from psychopathia sexualis, which is uh, kind of the first major European tome on sexual paraphilias. But today we use the word in a colloquial fashion. So we use the word masochist to describe everyone from an ultra marathoner to a chilly head to um, someone who does polar plunges, ballet dancers, combat fighters. Like it's a huge umbrella because what we talk about when we talk about masochism is something that is consensual and is based on the subjective nature of pain. So broadly speaking, if you cannot opt in and opt out, it's not masochism, it's suffering, it's something else. I'm talking about a very thin sliver of painful experience, which is pain that you consented to, which creates a context for the pain itself because pain is always subjective. Every time you experience it, it's cooked up fresh, it's contextual, it's based on your emotional state. There's no one machine out there that I could put your brain in that would tell me exactly how much pain you have. And from there, we can get into masochism. Yeah, no, you raise a really good point that this is consensual because oftentimes I think people forget that you know if you're in a hot pepper eating contest, nobody forced you to, you're there by choice. Or Correct. that guy who eats 70 hot dogs in a minute that's got to be masochism. Yes. <laughs> um, even if you are a meat eater, which I tend not to be. But but really, that's kind of a key point here is, is there's an opt-in and an opt-out that you're choosing to allow a level of pain, probably in a situation where you have trust, mm-hmm. probably have some idea, like if you're in a pepper eating contest, you probably kind of know what you're going to get. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, when you think about how the experience of pain, which is something that happens in your body after experiencing uh, adversive stimuli, it is not just a physical sensation. It's, it's emotional. Having pain brings you unequivocally into the present moment. It's very hard to think about your taxes or your grocery list or other things when you are kind of subsumed by this one aversive sensory experience. And that having pain can also create this biochemical cascade of feel-good chemicals that can make you feel better after. You know, when people talk about the runner's high, they're talking about activation of the endogenous morphine system and the endocannabinoid system inside their bodies that's actually making them feel better after they suffered. And again, for... I think everybody can understand that, but when you just hear the word masochism, some people don't get it, right? That, (laughs) um, and one thing you get into in the book, and and I don't wanna lose sight of the event, but I am finding the book quite fascinating. One thing you spend a lot of time on the book and this impacts your own life is is ballet dancers. Mm -hmm. And if you're a young girl and you reach that point where you can dance on point, 
you are setting yourself up for a world of pain and basically a lifetime of misery with what you do to your feet, dance <laughs> on point, right? And yes. you do it gladly because you're going to be a ballerina and maybe you end up at the Joffrey or the Utah Ballet Company or whatever it might be. But wow, talk about masochism. Absolutely. Talk about accepting the pain. Wow. Well, I was, you know, I started doing ballet when I was four. I did it about 20 years, uh, including professionally. And I was very much indoctrinated into the cult of discipline and pain required to do this art form. And I think a lot about how that shaped my relationship with my body growing up. And at times that became very dark and very adversarial. I was not taught to be embodied in my body. I was taught to be separate of it, to lord over it, to make it something else. And that was devastating. And it's taken me a lot of time to repair that relationship with myself. And part of what may actually like got me to write this book was a very um, kind of sincere and intimate curiosity about myself. Like, why is it that after all of this pain that I went through in ballet and all of this abuse that I perpetrated against myself, and then I, I go through all this healing, which is a never ending journey, and I still have a fondness for pain recreationally. It's absent the desire for harm and, and destruction, but I still like chili peppers, polar plunges, <laughs> BDSM, like all of this kind of oh. goofy pain stuff. So I wanted to know like, why am I like this? Is this a problem? Like, will this ever go away? Is there something wrong with me? And through that, began to realize the ubiquity of masochism, how often we bite our nails or you know, use the habanero sauce or whatever. And what are we getting out of that? What does that say about us as humans? And how can we be curious about our desires in a way that keeps us safe? Good point. And of course, we shouldn't get too far away from the religious traditions of wearing a hair shirt or mm -hmm. flagellating yourself to somehow not my cup of tea, but somehow get closer to God or closer to the divine by abusing yourself and suffering through it. Or even if we go back to the ancient Greeks, suffering is good for the soul or through suffering comes enlightenment. And you're simplifying that in some way to just runner's high. <laughs> well, oversimplified, maybe. <laughs> no, no, totally, totally oversimplified. But, but I, was, I was just hearing news account the other day that they are now working on how to add pain into virtual reality headsets. Interesting. I mean, I definitely get into the link between religion and masochism in yeah. my book. Um, you know, I talked a bit at the beginning about pain being linked to transcendence. But additionally, we are uh, many of us are kind of raised with a penitential model of punishment, and we can equate suffering with absolution. And there's, there's something to be said about the way that we feel when we work harder for something and the amelioration of guilt that we can kind of tack on to these painful sensations to say to ourselves, like, I made up for it. I'm okay now. And it makes sense that cultures around the world would use painful stimuli and the experience of pain in their religious practice because you know, our bodies are, are capable of so much. And the fact we humans are curious about sensation and it's just, it's neat. There are a million questions, unanswered questions about masochism that still exist. Oh. And that makes my job very, very fun. Well, and it made the book, it makes the book a really fun read. Like I said, you're, you're rather 
irreverent in your writing, but get into all these points of science. And I want to bring Justin back in and talk about the steampunk event on the first. But one last thing that struck me in your book was this scientist who was bit by the snake. And he yes. didn't think much of it because the snake bite again, that all the venom went in right away. And he, and to him, it was just a like a leaf had scratched him or a twig had scratched him. Mm-hmm. And he almost died from the snake bite. But the next time a real leaf, a twig scratched him at that spot, he fell on the ground writhing as if it was the snake again. Yes. That's such, it's so amazing. It's such a good example of the subjective nature of pain. Because, you know, this is a a story from Dr. Lorimer Mosley, who is, in fact, a pain researcher, (laughs) (laughs) which makes it even better. So he was in he was hiking and he just feels a sensation on the outside of his leg. And at that moment, his brain did what brains do, which is like, okay, where am I? Am I expecting this? Is this a normal sensation for this scenario? Like, do I sense that I am in any danger? And it kind of goes through all these like subconscious checklists and then just kind of gives him a thumbs up. Like, yeah, no, you're good. Whatever is a twig. And it wasn't. But his brain, having learned the great lesson of last time, when he goes hiking again, feels a twig and his brain's like, absolutely not. No, no, no. Last time we felt that we almost died and I will not be having that today. I'm dropping you like a sack of rocks. We're done here. Yeah. And no small irony. He's a pain researcher. (laughs) So Anyway, you mentioned something crazy would happen at the event on April 1st. Can you give us a hint? Yes, I am going to, before I do a brief reading, which is part of the event, I've decided that I will gargle hot sauce made from the hottest pepper in the world and then try to do my reading about the science of hot peppers. Which sounds like a great idea now, but I'm sure I'm going to be just like crying and drooling about it when I actually have to do it. Do do you, do you, I don't know if you do these kind of events regularly, but I mean, doing something live like that's a little bit different than dancing, than dancing ballet, although maybe not much. Is it kind of a performance art to sort of take the Absolutely. absolutely. It's much more fun to have an audience for something like that, because like (laughs) you get to feed off of the horror that's just like, on their faces as they watch you just make a terrible decision with no real consequence. I'm not going to be harmed by it, but I am going to suffer. And then I'm going to be like floating on endorphins afterwards. It's a great proof of concept because you can see it in real time, just how awful and then just how fun it can be. Well, people are going to see it in your face if the lighting is good. I know you want to be (laughs) in the bar, but holy, no, I mean, I just think this is a fascinating idea that, that some people in the audience who perhaps have an aversion to hot food are going to have some kind of vicarious reaction to you, right? And other mm-hmm. people in the audience who love hot peppers are going to, it's going to hit them very differently, but yet you're the one with the pain. Well, <laughs> uh, people that do love hot peppers will have the opportunity to try it themselves. Ooh, yes. Justice. Uh, that is also part of the event is we will have our own mini competition. We got a hot sauce company here here in Utah called Burden Your Tongue to, to supply and support that part of the event so oh well justice thanks for jumping back in i wanted to bring you back in here the event is the euphoric pursuit of agony this is your steampunk punk event on the first um at shades bar on on state street at the south end of downtown salt lake city 3 400 south okay so 
Before we let you all go, because this is kind of fun to talk about, and I have a lot more questions about the book, but but I do have I do have other questions I want to ask other folks too. But the Steampunk Academy, Science, Technology, Engineering, Arts, and Math, the Punk Academy. Justice, you mentioned this evolved out of something at Salt Lake Community College, where of course I know you as a faculty member there and a faculty uh, leadership person as well at the college. Tell me a little bit about the steampunk and how this all got going and how it's evolved into sort of the events you hold now post-COVID. Well, so my interest, I'm a professor of psychology, which you can see why I was very interested in Lee's book and, and enjoyed it so much. Uh, but my main area of like scholarly interest these days is, is science communication. And we really have to get, you know, it's one thing to do all this great science and teach college students about it, but we've got to get out of the ivory tower. And so the whole mission of what we do is to kind of show people um, what the cool stuff is happening out there, how much fun you can have engaging in science and everything else. Um, and also one of the reasons why we like events like talking about, you know, things, something like masochism is it shows that, you know, science, we're discovering all sorts of things about the human experience, right? Not just the kind of stereotypical things that people think of when they think of um, scientists. And so that's why we just want to share it with the world. So, Well, I mean, like you say, you get out of the ivory tower and then you end up at a pub. So that there, yep. there seems yeah. something, some great philosophers ought to have something to say about that. So I know I have to let you go and folks will just have to show up on Friday night at Shades Pub for Don't Pity the Fool, The Euphoric Pursuit of Agony with Lee Cowart. Lee Cowart, best wishes with the book. Thanks for taking time to chat with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to see y'all on Friday. Oh, <laughs> and don't forget the hot peppers, yes. And Justice, <laughs> remind folks again how they can get involved and how to show up or what they need to do. Yeah, so the event starts promptly at 7 p.m. Um, we will also have a Madison Can Can, a well-regarded burlesque and drag performer to start the night. So, you know, we're getting it started spicy. Um, and then um, so they can uh, just show up. Uh, I recommend getting there a little bit early before 7. Uh, you can also find out more information uh, about ticketing, et cetera, at just steampunk.academy. Um, and you can go to our events page there and then all the info will be there. So. And we'll get those links in the show notes and whatnot as well. This is April 1st, Friday, 7 p.m., Shades Pub, which is 366 State Street, downtown Salt Lake City. Don't pity the fool. The euphoric pursuit of agony with Lee Cowart. Thank you both for taking time to be with us. Well, thank you. Well, my pleasure. Enjoy. Be euphoric. Joining me now on the show, Cheryl. Cheryl Fox, correct? Thank you for being with us. Thank you. So... The Summit Land Conservancy, Cheryl Fox, you are the executive director. This is the 20th anniversary, and I have to say, you all in Summit County, which I'll admit is where I live as well, um, it's pretty amazing, not only the value of land, but the ability to save so much of it when there are an awful lot of pressures to build another $5 million home. It's, it's well, thank you. <laughs> Yes, you're right. There are a lot of pressures, development pressures up here um, all along the Wasatch Back. And actually, the Summit Land Conservancy, over the course of our 20 years, in response to communities from all across the Wasatch Back, um, have now started to help those communities save open space 
farm and ranch land, land along the Weber or Provo rivers in their communities as well. So we are working in the four counties of the Wasatch back from Weber County to Wasatch County. Right. So, yeah, I mean, your work goes quite far. And of course, we also see the city council and the summit county council also working about land preservations. There's a lot of debate over development. We saw the Utah legislature give a special sweetheart bill to one particular company to massively develop one bit of land near the Skull Candy headquarters at Kimball Junction. But I thought I wanted to ask about the McPollin Barn because that's something I think most everybody from Salt Lake City who drives up to Park City to either ski or go downtown to have lunch or something, they drive by this McPollin Barn and so many people remember the cows in the road, the traffic would have to stop for the cows to go across the road. Um, now that's all public land. There's gorgeous trails along the river and the creeks there, up into the wooded trees. And of course, up behind, I wanna say south up on the hill behind where the barn and the land is saved, we've got a whole small subdivision of you know mega expensive homes. So here, how long since that barn was saved? And tell me about that process and how, how that's working now. So the McPollin farm was owned actually by the Osgothorpe family. And um, they were the ones with the dairy and the cattle operation. And as you mentioned that, you know, they had to bring their cows across the road across 224 <laughs> because the milking parlor was on the west, the east side of the road, the quarry mountain side. And then the cows would pasture on the, on the west side. So that was, yes, one of those sort of iconic moments um, if you happen to be crossing the road at the wrong time. Of course, in those days, 224, which is the main route into Park City, was a little two-lane, bumpity-bumpity um, highway. Yeah. So, so hopefully nobody was going too fast. Um, in the early 1990s, UDOT had planned to widen that road. And the Osgothorpe family, you know, they didn't really want to see it widened because it would, it would kind of put their dairy operation out of business. So Doc Osgothorpe came up with a lot of ideas to try to, to stop what was basically um, coming down as a condemnation proceeding so that the road mm -hmm. could be widened. And um, in the end, the family decided to sell the farm to the city, Park City. Park City at that time, you know, again, this was the early 90s. They didn't have open space bonds. It was a it was a really kind of scary moment. And I applaud the city council in those days for saying, well, you know, we're going to step up. We're going to come up with four million dollars. We're going to buy this land. And they did 1991 or so. So then um, they you know, the city owns the land. The cows went away. And um, for a number of years, the city was you know sort of saying well what do we do with this how do we make sure we protect it and they tried a couple different different ideas um, and eventually in 2006 they put a conservation easement on it with the Summit Land Conservancy and we again applaud the city council because a, a conservation easement held by a third party like the Summit Land Conservancy is the best tool we have in the nation for protecting open space so yes there are trails there are and and as you point out you know there's the neighboring subdivision up the up the mountain on the Iron Mountain side. At the moment, actually, the Summit Land Conservancy is working on putting about another 400 acres uphill of that subdivision under a conservation easement. This is land that's mostly owned by the city already, but it doesn't have that additional level of protection. In but it will, one, hopefully, by the end of this year. This would be up where the trees are behind the right. barn. Okay. Wow. High, higher, be, higher up on the mountain. You know, there's a yeah. above the homes. Yeah. Oh, I like that because the trails, 
There's very few places, I think, where you can have open hiking or cross-country skiing and then go up into the trees like in the fall and so on. Um, but you mentioned the particular family that owned this, what we now think of as the McPollin barn. And you all just did a whole nother land save of what, 160 or more acres of farmland? This family has been farming in the Snyderville Basin Park City area since 1947, the Osgothorpe family. And um, it actually started, they, Doc, bought the farm on, uh, on what's Old Ranch Road now, uh, 160 acres. But they own um, a, a lot of other additional land that is part of their agricultural operation. So they sold that, you know, the, the farm on 224 to the city, and then the city renamed it the McPolin farm after the people who built the actual big white barn. Yeah. Um, in 2012, 2010 through 2012, the Summit Land Conservancy worked with Park City Municipal and the Osgothorpe family, and we purchased a conservation easement on 120 acres that they own in Round Valley. So if people go to the Quinns Junction Trailhead and they go into Round Valley from that area, they're likely, if they're in the summertime, they'll see an irrigated field. That is owned by the Osgothorpe family. And again, um, they were willing to work with um, the community and save, save their farm as a farm. Um, and then again, in 2019, um, we managed to purchase a conservation easement on the Old Ranch Road property. That's the 160 acres. And just this past summer, I'm sorry, just this past winter, we worked with um, some other partners, Mountain Trails Foundation, the Snyderville Basin Recreation District, and again with the family. Um, and we were able to open that 160 acres up for cross country skiing in the wintertime. So Cheryl, thank you. I mean, it's amazing these partnerships, again, saving land, working with city, working with the county, working with these farming families. I know there's also a lot of controversy involved and you know, public relations must be part of your agenda because obviously people whose homes or townhomes or apartment buildings such as there are overlooking these open spaces love it but other people you know five miles away might not first think gee i want to devote money to something i'll never see so you know or do you have like a public relations background or how do you do these sales pitches I have a liberal arts background, so uh, whatever that means. No, that's um, wonderful. I love it. Um, but I think that you bring up a really good point here, Nick, and that is that as a as a nonprofit organization, our mission, our you know, we have to serve. We have to serve our communities. So it's really important that we listen to what people are saying, what they're asking for, what they're concerned about. And we don't have to solve all of those problems as a single organization, but I think when we can find partnerships and ways to work together with other nonprofits, I think it just makes the whole community better. Um, I do think there are, in fact, it's one of the things I think that is most meaningful to me about the work of the Summit Land Conservancy over the last 20 years is this bridge building between people who maybe didn't trust conservation before or had heard, you know, rumors or, or misinformation about, you know, what a conservation easement is. And, you know, being really, really able to sit down and put a human face to, you know, some, some very different ideas and sometimes some very different ideology is healing. And it makes our whole community better 
you know, we, we shake hands with people and we work together for a common goal. We become friends. Um, and this is how, you know, this is how we build communities that are resilient, that are healthy, that are respectful. And uh, we need more of those and more of that in our world right now. Oh, Cheryl Fox, Executive Director of Summit Land Conservancy. It's pretty simple. We save land.org. I like that. What about 20 years, the next 20 years? What's on the what's what's next or what are your sights on for saving beyond that land up behind the barn? We have a number of projects um, okay. on our agenda right now. Um, lots and lots. Some of them are. Um, uh, I think what we're going to do probably is launch a campaign that's called something like Mountains to Meadows. We have it is really important that the the wetlands and the lands, the farm and, and ranch lands along the Weber and Provo rivers, you know, these are the river, rivers that basically provide the drinking water for everybody on the Wasatch Front. So what happens up here on the Wasatch Back matters to everybody in the state that likes a drink of water. Um, and so the other issue, though, are the are the mountains, and there are big private rangeland. Um, properties up there. But, you know, again, this is the watershed. This is where we have to do fire mitigation. So, you know, I think one of the lessons that has become more and more apparent over the last 20 years is how connected we are to our natural environment, how our natural environment is interwoven and interconnected to so many different things in, in, in across the planet, really. Um, and so I think that we need to, again, continue to find partners and um, build relationships so that we can really um, maintain the quality of life that so many of us enjoy here in Northern Utah. Oh, thank you. And one last question. How long have you been the executive director? I have been the executive director. This is, that's a tricky question. And the reason is that back, oh. back in the old days, um, we didn't really keep great, uh, always as good records as we probably should have. And, um, but about towards the end of 2005, the beginning of 2006, I became the executive director. So, so for a long time. Yeah, you've been at this a long time. Congratulations. Love your work. Summit Land Conservancy, Cheryl Fox is the executive director. Check it out. WeSaveLand.org. Cheryl, thanks. Thank you. Everyone, check out tonight's show notes to learn more about the Summit Land Conservancy and the Steampunk Academy. Coming up next on the show, Gabe Archuleta, Policy Director at the YWCA of Utah. We're going to review, we're going to have a critical look. We're going to look into the recent rather legislative session through the eyes of the WISE mission to eliminate racism, empower women, promote peace, justice, freedom, and dignity for all. And with that in mind, let's build a bridge with Mavis Staples, right here on KRCL Radioactive. Utah Community Action is one of the largest nonprofits fighting poverty and its causes in the state. To support or access their programs for adult education, case management and housing, Head Start, heat utility assistance, nutrition, and weatherization for homes, visit utahca.org. The Utah Black Chamber's rescheduled Evening in Harlem Gala is on Friday, April 1st. This evening of art, music, and Harlem Renaissance-style entertainment benefits the Black Success Center. More information and registration at eveninginharlem.com. Reaching our community and rallying local support is at the heart of KRCL. 
We are your local megaphone, reaching thousands of listeners every single day. If you own your own business, KRCL is encouraging you to issue a challenge grant during our spring radiothon. Not only will this challenge grant connect you with our listeners, but it will also inspire others to show their support as well. Email trinab at krcl.org. Together we can connect and thrive. We are back on Radioactive. Joining us now, Gabe Archuleta, Director of Policy, YWCA of Utah. Gabe, hi. Hi. Hi, Nick. Nice to meet you. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. And thanks for taking time to talk with us about the legislative session. I think it's easy for people to have a lot of pros, cons, and sideways about the session. But at the Y, specifically, your mission to eliminate racism, to empower women, to promote peace, to promote justice, to promote freedom and dignity for everyone, I just thought I would ask you a few things about some of your policy priority areas and how you felt it shook out by the end of the legislative session. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and I don't want to overly burden everyone with HB and SB, this, that, and the other. So how about child care? Okay, yeah. So looking at child care, and we are a child care provider. We have a public-facing uh, child care center. We also provide drop-in and after-school and before-school care for the people who live on our campus, in our shelter, and our affordable apartments. Um, walking away from this session, the majority of people are not going to fill any sort of relief in child care. There's still hardly any places to get care. Waiting lists are long. And there's no relief as far as uh, payments go or helping people pay. So there were a few bills um, that are seeking to expand childcare, but the overall folks in Utah are not going to fill any significant um, relief in that area. Oh, and, and I know we've all heard talk about how gas prices are going up, which are squeezing yeah. people who are probably also people who need child care, but we're certainly not going to help on gas prices, and then we're probably not going to help on child care either for a while. How about domestic violence and sexual assault and helping survivors? What would you say, how would you say the legislative session fared for those folks? Well, domestic violence and sexual assault was one of the areas where we fared the best. We requested $4.24 million in ongoing funding for the domestic violence shelters across the state. And we received only half of that. We received $2 million. But even so, it's more than we've ever received in ongoing funding before. So we're really excited with that. We work together with the Domestic Violence Coalition and 14 other shelters that are throughout the state. And these are ongoing dollars. And we never before have had this amount of ongoing dollars that just helps us keep our shelters open. So that was really exciting. And then another piece of funding that we received was um, reauthorizing HomeSafe, which is funds that UDVC, the Utah Domestic Violence Coalition runs and shelters or advocates can reach out and request dollars for people that they are working with in order to help them access safe housing. So if they need a down payment, if they need to buy a washer and dryer, pay for transportation or childcare, these are funds that can go right to them. And we've got $300,000 each year ongoing. And base funding, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. So 
do you get to determine where that 4.2 will be spent in, on shelters and shelter funding and the 300,000, or do you have to like go to the legislature for their sort of write-off? So for the $4.24 million, that goes to the Department of Health and Human Services. Okay. And they're the ones that write our grant and, and we have to okay. apply to them for those funds and they oversee that. For the home safe funds, each uh, victim advocate or domestic violence shelter will reach out directly to UDVC. And there are just, there are some basic guidelines yeah. that we can use there. I just wondered when it comes to that 4.2 million and you all writing grants, does that fall to you? Is that part of your job? Fortunately, it's not. No, we are really uh, lucky to have a grant writer and a development staff at YWCA. Okay, just wondered. Um, and you mentioned housing, at least in terms of how there are funds that could help someone who needed a down payment or whatever. How about housing in general for women and kids? Yeah, housing in general, I think similar to childcare, nobody is going to come away from this session feeling a relief in housing. There were some bills and some appropriations uh, that, that's going for deeply affordable housing. But again, it's nothing that I think most people are going to feel a relief from, unfortunately. And speaking of your mission specifically, work that the legislature accomplished or let fall by the wayside when it comes to racial and gender equity? I mean, most people are going to know about the, the hateful bill uh, regarding trans kids and sports, but other issues that you either worked on and felt some success or some failure in terms of racial and gender equity? Yeah, I. so this is an area where we have gotten better, but we are just nowhere near where we need to be. Um, I think, I just think of all of the harm, the discussions around HB 11 cause trans youth, uh, gender nonconforming youth and other folks. And what I saw at the legislature with regard to, to racial equity bills was the legislature's willing to to pass legislation that is more commemorative um, regarding people of color or communities. And, and one of the great bills that we saw was the bill that creates Juneteenth as a state holiday, which is really great. But any bills that talk about, um, any bills that talk about actually anti-discrimination or protecting people, those just haven't had as much success. And, and I, I would like to see more of that with our, uh, with our policies in Utah. You said something very interesting there that I think it's worth repeating, and that is the legislature is pretty good about passing something that's commemorative. Oh, it was so terrible what happened, or oh, we'll make a holiday. But when it comes to stepping up, for instance, for full day kindergarten, yeah. not much, or affordable housing, yeah, not so much. Yeah, so with full day kindergarten, uh, the bill passed, but it's optional still throughout the state and only half of the funding that was required to make it really accessible throughout the state, only half of the funding um, was approved. So uh, it's, it's at least a start, but funding full day kindergarten is so intertwined with childcare because if you don't have access to full day kindergarten, then you are going to have to pay for childcare if you're a working parent. My partner and I experienced that. We had to pay a lot of money for private kindergarten because 
given the nature of our jobs, we weren't able to do a half day situation for kindergarten. So it's very much tied with, um, with access to childcare. And um, it, it was so great that it passed, but I wish we would have seen more funding support there. 50% seems a little thin and, and I hold yeah. some fears that the money might end up, since it isn't fully funded, I have some fears that it, there won't be equitable distribution. Yeah, yes, I agree. Well, okay, so this is a big pile of depression actually talking about, talking about the legislative session. Um, reproductive health, should we ask about that? Because that's certainly an issue that impacts um, your mission. I know that yes. before the feds, and I know that we're a state that can be kind of rabid in that area. Um, what do you think? Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned the pile of depression, and I just want to comment on that first. So okay. when we were talking about masochism, I just thought this this just pairs so well with talking about the legislative session. Uh, I very much feel like a masochist um, at consenting to subjecting myself to the legislative session <laughs> because it is it you really have to it, it's painful at times um, and you subject yourself to these this really difficult and and seemingly impossible situation to get a, you know maybe a little bit of value yeah. <laughs> at the end <clears throat> but with re reproductive health I'm really glad that um, I'm really glad that uh, an important bill that passed was to allow medication for inmates and, and expanded the contraceptive use that uh, inmates have access to. So that's a great reproductive bill that passed. And I was also really happy that the abortion modifications bill that was considered did not go anywhere. Medical practice amendments that would um, not allow uh, youth to get um, uh, gender conforming care. And then, um, so it was good that there were several things that didn't pass. Well, thank you for the lighthearted approach and talk about the first half of the show yeah. in masochism to be up on the Hill in February and March. Where did we end up with the period products in school bill? I want to say that was HB 162. Oh. Right. Yes. Uh, that bill passed and had oh, okay. so much support. And, and that's really a great bill because uh, one is so many people have to choose between food and having feminine hygiene products. So I, I love that that's going to be accessible in schools throughout the state of Utah. It seems kind of a no-brainer when you put toilet paper in the school bathroom. It doesn't seem all that hard yeah. to get period products. But again, when a bunch of conservative men run the legislature, we could probably spend a half hour being masochistic and talking yeah. about that. But speaking right. of folks who are struggling, you know, the idea of the sales tax on food. Nope, we couldn't remove that, but we could reduce income taxes, which is going to benefit the mega wealthy more than anybody else. So it, it's hard not to feel a little insult. I think. Yeah, um, yeah, I agree. Any other wins you want to mention? Yeah, so uh, Senator Weiler's paid leave modifications um, passed, and that is for state employees, and it allows for paid leave. Uh, I believe it's up to three weeks for um, 
the birth or adoption of a child. So that's really great. I wish that's something that we could extend throughout the state and, and not just have it be for state employees. Um, similarly, uh, there was um, the bereavement leave amendments, which allows for, uh, I believe up to three days off of work for state employees if they're experience, if they've experienced the loss of a child through pregnancy or stillbirth. So maternal mental health is an area that we champion. And so it was great to see that that's, um, and that will be an option for state employees. Okay, well, it's a start, right? At least it's state employees. And in terms of your work, we did see some funding for uh, intimate partner violence prevention, and we saw some funding directed yes. towards murdered and missing Indigenous women. And I wonder if any of that funding is something you all will get to help disperse. Yes, so we are really excited about the prevention funding. I'm so glad that you brought that up. Uh, you know, so much of our work wouldn't be necessary if we invested more in prevention and education. Uh, and that definitely will impact us. We don't distribute those funds at all, but we have a preventionist on staff and we have a prevention team that, that goes out. Um, and so we're really happy to receive those funds. And then the missing and murder, murdered indigenous women and girls uh, funding for the task force is great because it will allow them to do some additional research, which is something that we absolutely support. Totally. And, and just to wrap up, I know we've only got a few minutes left. In your work as director of policy, do you ever work together with YWCA policy directors in other states to like compare notes as to what's being passed and supported elsewhere? Because I could imagine that perhaps heavily red states, your work might be somewhat different than in quote, heavily blue states. Yeah, that's a really good question. We do. There are over 200 YWCAs throughout Utah, throughout the United States, and sometimes our national organization will get us together. We'll we'll meet up and talk about what each other are doing, and yeah, get we'll get tips from each other. Um, and they also, our national organization also does a really great job of supporting us doing advocacy on the federal level. So we also get together for that as well. I'm, I might imagine that at least these days, the federal level might be a little bit less masochistic. Um, I don't know. I don't know that I would go so far to okay. say that. Um, they, I mean, you know, they did uh, pass uh, the Crown Act, which didn't pass in Utah. Um, I mean, maybe. Um, I will say, though, that uh, this is the first year that we have had paid policy fellows. So uh, I was fortunate enough to work with three policy fellows. One of our policy fellows worked for the Maryland legislature for four years on areas very similar to ours. And we've just been talking this whole session about the vast differences in what you can accomplish um, depending on the context of the state in these areas. Wow. So a couple last questions, just because we will see an interim session coming up. And that, that rather makes me think, and I think it's obvious, but I want to point it out that your public policy kind of job never ends just when the session ends. No, it never ends. And, you know, I took a few days to try to, you know, regain my energy after the session ended, but immediately was already thinking about next session and what's happening at interim session. So yeah, it's, it's year round for sure. And when it comes to the monies that we did see, the 4.2 million you mentioned and the 300,000, 
how quickly are you all at the Y able to sort of readjust your priorities because you're not really going to know what's going to pass until the session's over. So what happens internally to try to figure out shifting gears based on what direction the legislature wants to send money? Oh, wow. That's, uh, that's such a great question. It's, and I think it's just a broader question of how do we function as a nonprofit when we're so reliant on funding from various sources? Uh, you know, I think we are really fortunate to have a great finance department. We've got a grants team. We have an amazing leadership team and everybody just works together and rolls with whatever we have. Um, because another aspect of it, because it goes through the state, sometimes we don't know when we will see the money also. So that impacts when we can hire for people, that impacts when we can um, s s implement programs. So we just have to be really flexible. Okay. Well, Gabe, thank you very much. I do want to point out before we let you go that you now call your 21-day challenge, it's the Stand Against Racism Challenge, and registration's open and upcoming. If you could share anything about that. Yes, our Stand Against Racism Challenge is similar to our 21 Day Challenge that we've had the last couple of years, but our national organization has put together the content, so we've just adapted it a little. It starts on April 4th. We would love for people to get involved with that. It will last over 21 days, just during the work days. And it's pretty amazing that when I've completed it in the past, twice I think, that there are all these different ways to sort of get engaged. Do you want to read an article? Do you want to watch a video? Do you want to do this? Do you want to do all three? And I thought what you all have set up is really educational. And, and even in my work in higher education, I've talked to colleagues. They're like, well, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. So oh, nice. shout out to all y'all putting this together. Thank you. And if there's time, I just wanted to plug two sure. more events that we have. Tomorrow at noon is our legislative recap event. We will have Senator Escamilla, Senator Iwamoto, Representative Judkins, and Representative Romero on our panel. And then on May 20th, we have our leader luncheon and our keynote speakers, uh, the uh, renowned Dr. Angela Davis. Well, Gabe Archuleta, thank you for all your work and thank you for taking time to join us today. And after the interim session, when you've, when you've recovered from that, come back, let's chat again. Okay, thank you so much, Nick. Thank you. And we'll get notes and links and whatnot in our show notes for folks who want to learn more and want to be involved in the Stand Against Racism Challenge. That's our show for today. Gosh, we talked about Don't Pity the Fool, the Euphoric Pursuit of Agony with Lee Cowart. That's coming up steampunk academy friday night at seven we talked about saving land up in summit county with the summit land conservancy and you just heard gabe archuleta the director of policy at the ywca of utah my thank you to radioactive producer laura jones she keeps me she keeps all of us on the radio on the straight and narrow on your community connection krcl as well as online krcl.org you can of course stream all our shows check it out krcl.org. I'm Nick Burns. Next up, Democracy Now! <laughs>